Hey everyone, my name is Brian Doak. This is George Fox Talks, and today we are talking about civil war. Hey, I'm Brian Doak, and I am here in the studio today with two very special guests to talk about the civil war and to talk about contemporary society in light of the civil war. Our first guest is Professor Alan Gelzo, who is a senior research scholar at Princeton. Professor Gelzo is actually one of our nation's foremost Civil War historians. Um, he's a New York Times bestselling author of a definitive biography of Robert E. Lee, as well as Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Well, so great thank to you have very you much, Brian. It's yeah, good to be here. Yeah. We also have on my other side, Professor uh, Professor and President Robin Baker. Uh, Robin Baker came to George Fox University as provost in 1999 and became president in 2007. So he's been president here for 16 years. Um, named by the Portland Business Journal as one of its uh, 2023 executives of the year, but has a secret identity, my friends. Before all of this, he did his PhD and his scholarly work as a Civil War historian at Texas A&M, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So welcome, President Baker. We're so excited to have this conversation with you about the Civil War. Thank you. Yeah. Alan, can I can I ask you, why are people still so obsessed with the Civil War? I feel like people are talking about this a lot. It keeps coming up. I drive around. I, I occasionally see Confederate flags in people's car windows. Like, what is so enduring about this moment in American history that people keep dredging it up and talking about it so much? Well, Brian, for one thing, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, is, it is a great conflict. It mm. is the, our national Iliad and Odyssey. Oh, wow. And it comes as a great relief because a great deal of the rest of American 19th century history is not actually all that stimulating. Mm. When you compare it, for instance, to, well, let's say Canada, uh, we are, we're Canada minus Sir John Franklin. We are uh, a nation with a succession of presidents who are remarkable for their colorlessness and uh, lack of distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, Chester Allen Arthur. I mean, not exactly household names. These were all presidents during the 19th, 19th century. century. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Civil War is almost comes almost comes as a kind of relief because there we really get we get contest, yeah. we get conflict, yeah. we have drama. Yeah. Another reason why the Civil War is still with us is because Civil Wars tend to hang around a long time, mm. even after they're long over. Mm. Civil Wars are a peculiar kind of conflict. Mm. They generate deep divisions in societies. Mm. And even when the shooting may stop, the legacy does not. Mm. It was said by no one less than T.S. Eliot writing about the English Civil Wars. English Civil Wars aren't even over yet. And he was talking about Civil Wars going back to the 17th century. <laughs> civil Wars tend to be the most violent. They tend to cause the largest numbers of casualties. They don't come to easy conclusions at the end. Mm. And they stay around and haunt us. I mean, think of the kind of civil conflicts that have convulsed Ireland mm -hmm. over the course of the last century. Uh, think of what happened in the Balkans in the 1990s. Right. Civil wars are deadly and they are of long standing wow. in historical memory. One other reason why I think it's particular for the American Civil War to have such long innings in American life is because Americans have a sort of instinct for the underdog. Mm. And so there's a weakness that we have for regarding the losers in the American Civil War as being, well, somewhat interesting, something similar to what a lot of Americans experience. 
coming out from the very bottom of a pile and accomplishing some great deeds, and especially even if you don't win at the end, still mm. being able to retrieve some nobility mm. out of the, the shards of defeat. Mm. That's a constant theme, for instance, in country western music. Hmm. Country western music is always about loss and right. defeat. So the American Civil War also speaks to that. And if there are people running around with Confederate flags, sometimes it's not because they have a particular political affection for the Confederacy. Hmm. I doubt whether any of them have ever read the Confederate Constitution. <laughs> but there is a certain fondness Americans have for underdogs, huh. for losers. We're a society that worships success. We're a society that worships people who come out on top. But it's precisely because we see how relentless that can often be that we're sympathetic in peculiar ways to those who don't always win hmm. and who don't always come hmm. out as number one. Mm -hmm. And the Confederacy benefits from that. The memory of the Confederacy, however inaccurately possessed, reflects that. So the Civil War speaks to us on a number of levels and it presents us with a drama that we just can't resist. Robin, when you started your your academic journey, were, do you recognize any of these themes and what, what drew you to that study when, when, you, when you were a student and then in your ongoing professional work? Absolutely. And I really, I think I just want to listen to Alan, but uh, there <laughs> there is a sense that fits in with what you said that the stories are also compelling. And I think that's what you were getting at. So for me, uh, as a young man reading the story of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, right? So where else do you have a essentially a literature professor who uh, leads a voluntary unit and he tells his own story of course but um he's wounded what four or five times on the battlefield he uh he ends up uh being essentially highly regarded as a military uh officer i mean that just doesn't happen in in even in british culture much no. uh you have much no. more of a professional piece and even lincoln himself not formally educated and yet he becomes um, at least by many historians, one of the most significant presidents in American history. So those those stories always drew me simply in some ways because they reflect what it means to be an American. So often in the Civil War, what we encounter are amateurs. Yeah. There was nothing or almost nothing in the way of a professional standing army at the beginning of the Civil War. Civil Wars fought by, by civilians in uniform on short-term short enlistments. And it's fought by people who don't have any kind of professional training, who have to pick this up on the fly, if they pick it up at all. So you have armies commanded by people who had been clerks in stores. You have regiments that are commanded by people who had been apprentices or clerks working for a lawyer. A remarkable moment when you have so much of what is not professional creating such remarkable stories. I think that resonates with something very deep in the American character that prizes the amateur over the professional, the person of ordinary experience over someone who has mm. inherited position and status. Mm -hmm. Civil War at many moments speaks to all of those things mm. that are very important to Americans and to American culture. It, hearing you talk about this, it, it almost it sounds like in a way you're almost saying the civil war was a war that acted out our deepest identity in some ways as a country it reflected elements of our identity it acted out our our kind of our fears and our distinct national character oh, yes. is that is that yeah. accurate to put it like that i mean I consider so. the fact that fundamentally what the civil war is about is the most important virtue that americans prize and that is freedom mm. 
Because what are we talking about? We're talking about a war that is going to free people from slavery. Mm-hmm. For Americans, given our history, there is nothing in our pantheon of great deeds that speaks more to what is dear to our hearts than a war for freedom. Mm. That's how we cast all of our wars, even when sometimes those conflicts have not always been about the highest forms of freedom. Nevertheless, that's how we want to interpret them. And the Civil War, certainly, in in the most unqualified sense, really is a war about freedom, a war for freedom, in which we made tremendous sacrifices. I mean, think about it this way. What other society in the 19th century would think of going to war on behalf of slaves. Hmm. And yet the United States did. Every other major emancipation in the world at that time, Brazil, the West Indies, these were all accomplished by civil and legal and statutory means. The United States, we have to do it by war. Hmm. We have to do it marching as to war. For us, it has to be a crusade. Why? Because freedom is something so important to us Hmm. as a people. Hmm. I've because I've heard Robin talk passionately about about Lincoln's second inaugural address in which he states outwardly that some phrase like all knew the cause of the war to have been slavery. Why was it the case, though, when I was in school, I feel like when I was in grade school or even high school, I feel like when I was taught Civil War history and, and I've come to understand, you know, slavery being so central to the war and freedom. But like I was taught that slavery was not the center of, and, and there was like a kind of a whole generation of people who use this kind of language that, well, it was really a political issue. It was about the divisions. Like, was, 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 my, was my schooling just very weird on that front? Or was that like a theme that some people had tried to push at some point, that the war really wasn't about slavery? I don't think so. Although I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contribute by asking Alan a, yeah. a question. I mean, what you just stated, that, that essentially the war was about freedom and in particular about African-American freedom. So some scholars will make the argument that Lincoln didn't really believe that at the beginning of the war, but by, by 1862, 1863, he comes around. And so their argument would be in some context that um, the war really didn't begin as a war about slavery, but for political reasons, it, it later becomes a war about freedom for African-Americans. And of course, Lincoln in the second inaugural specifically says it was always that way. But it's as, as you said, mm. There's been disagreement over time about this issue. And when I was in Texas, they, they taught it as the, the war for Southern independence in many places for real. This is in the 1970s. So how do you respond, you know, to that kind of, uh, you know, long question? Well, a couple of ways. Of course, the people who lose in a conflict don't like to have their loss linked to a cause that later generations will say made them deserve to lose. Mm-hmm. So you try to link it to something else. It gives you more of a sense of nobility of being able to retrieve something from the mess historically that was created by the war. Mm-hmm. I think that's a large impetus for a lot of the way people thought about it. And there's also this question as you move into the Gilded Age and into the 20th century and the progressive era, the imperative that there was for stitching the country back together, that the United States, if it was going to move ahead at all, was going to have to do it as a single country. It couldn't keep perpetuating division over the Civil War. It needed some kind of united front Mm. in which to move forward because, for one thing, the United States was going to form the single biggest free trade zone in the world. If you're going to cling to old arguments and old battles, then the feeling becomes that's 
actually going to be counterproductive. So it becomes a, an imperative for many people to want to promote reconciliation. And reconciliation means you tone down the side that you were defending and you accept some of the toning up of the other side's defense of what mm -hmm. it's doing. A lot of people are willing to accept that. A lot fewer, I think, than we sometimes realize, though. There were persistent strains of resistance to that theme of reconciliation. And in a sense, I suppose I'm a benefit, a beneficiary of one of them. You were talking about your experience, Robin, in Texas. My experience is that of, of a Yankee from Yankee land. I'm, I'm a Pennsylvania boy, a Philadelphia boy. I was raised by, by my grandparents. My grandmother remembered as a schoolgirl, old veterans of the Union Army coming to her school in North Philadelphia on what they then called Decoration Day, Memorial Day. Mm. They came to those schools to teach those kids what that war had really been about. And one thing it definitely was not about was what those miserable, lying Johnny Rebs were telling you it was about. For those old soldiers, the war was about freedom. It was about emancipation. It was about the destruction of slavery. Mm. That was passed on to my grandmother who passed it on to <laughs> me. For me, the great song of the American Civil War was never Dixie. It was always the battle hymn of the Republic. Mm. So... Sometimes it does depend on how you're being educated and where you're being raised. So I, I bring the Yankee perspective to it. And the Yankee perspective to it was the North's cause was the cause of freedom and right. It was the great old cause, as in Walt Whitman's poem, to the old cause. Now, the perspective of people in the South who have much more that they have to do to work out from under the burden of history, that's going to point people in some different directions. Ultimately, though, I am reluctant to concede, in fact, refuse to concede, at least this point. The Civil War was really about freedom. And the people who fought for the North fought for it for the freedom of the slave, even if sometimes they didn't always want to admit it to themselves. By the end of the war, they did. But if at first they were reluctant to do that, there were political reasons for it. Some people have asked, why didn't Lincoln simply emancipate the slaves the day after Fort Sumter fell? Well, there were, in fact, a good many reasons why he couldn't. First of all, presidents don't have the unilateral authority to do things like that. And Lincoln was a lawyer, and Lincoln knew that. He was going to have to go through a process. Second thing about that is that Lincoln knew very well that slavery was at the root of this war. And from the very beginning, he was, in fact, working on plans for emancipation. But one by one, those plans for emancipation were obstructed, derailed. It's not really until the 1st of January, 1863, that he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, a presidential proclamation. But he only does that, not because he's been hesitant, not because he's been holding back, it's because he's been trying some other things and they haven't worked out. And now he's going to try the presidential proclamation based on military necessity. So Lincoln understood from the very beginning that the Civil War was about slavery. He also understood it was about preserving the Union. But for, for Lincoln, preserving the Union and getting rid of slavery were two sides of the same coin. I mean, what, union, what union were you really going to find worth preserving if it did not get rid of slavery? How could you get slavery if you permitted the division of the Union? Because if you permitted the division of the Union, the Confederacy would be an independent nation, 
and nothing he could do as the president of the United States could have any legal effect on the Confederate States of America. No, you had to restore the Union to get emancipation. You had to have emancipation to make restoring the Union worthwhile. The two really worked together in Lincoln's mind. But many other people down on the other side of the Potomac, they also thought they were talking about freedom, but it was freedom of a different kind. In this case, it would be the freedom to hold other people in slavery. That is an ugly fact, but it is a fact that over and over again, the Confederates during the war kept repeating. What they wanted was the freedom to hold other people in bondage. When they go down to defeat, of course, that's embarrassing. So the story shifts. Changes and shifts. When we think of the war this way, as a war for freedom, the North won, slaves were freed, it was righteous. Now the issue comes into starker contrast and, and even becomes maybe more confusing, especially for younger people today, maybe people of my generation and younger who look out and see and realize, maybe maybe first realize in 2017 or 2020 during some of the riots and various kinds of controversies that came up around Confederate monuments, that there even were Confederate monuments, that there'd be monuments to the Confederacy, to the losing side, to the traitors, to those who enslaved others. Why? I mean, even as a basic question, I guess I want to ask to start, like, why, why were there even Confederate monuments? Were those all erected by the South in order to celebrate their lost cause? Or is there some more complex story about why we would have war monuments to a losing side like that? Well, sometimes it was a matter of celebrating a lost cause. Sometimes Southern monuments are put up as a device to remind some parts of their society that they are not in control, that they do not have power, mm. and that they have to respect the power structures that remain even after the defeat of the Confederacy. Sometimes that's true. Mm. Then there are other times when monuments have other functions. Sometimes they're there because old soldiers, decades and decades after the war, are remembering the one great livid experience of their youth mm. and are putting up a monument to that. Sometimes monuments are trying to tell Southerners a story they don't always want to hear. Mm. This is, I think, particularly true of the Robert E. Lee monument that was at the center of so much controversy in Charlottesville mm. in 2017. That was seized upon almost immediately as an example, uh, a segregation monument. Hmm. This Robert E. Lee statue is there to remind black Virginians that they should always be in a secondary role hmm. in American society. Dig a little deeper, though, in the creation of that monument. That is not quite what's going on there. Hmm. The Lee Monument in Charlottesville was put up in 1926. It was actually sculpted by an Italian sculptor hmm. and financed by, by Northerners. And when it was dedicated, the dedication address was issued by Maury Jones, a Baptist minister from Georgia, whose father had written a biography of Robert E. Lee. That's why he got the ticket for the address. But in it, Jones, who had clashed with the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia, no segregationist he, Jones, Jones said in that dedication speech that the purpose of this statue was so that Robert E. Lee could point Southerners away from their past towards a future, hmm. a future that Jones at least believed Lee in his last five years as president of Washington College had tried to point other Southerners toward. Was it the most effective way of doing it? 
Probably not. Was it clumsy? Probably. <laughs> but it was certainly not quite as simplistic mm. as we might want to imagine, which reminds us that monuments are never simplistic. Mm. Not even monuments in the best cause or to the most memorable people. Right. So how do we treat these kinds of monuments? There's a monument, for instance, out in California in Donner State Park. As soon as I say Donner, that should trigger something. The Donner Party. The Donner Party of yes. the Mountain Pass, that yeah, whole the issue? That, okay. The group that result, resorts to cannibalism yes, because yes. the snows come down in the yeah. Sierra Nevadas. Yeah. All right, there's a, Do a Donner State Park, and there's a monument to the Donner Party. Hmm. Oddly enough, right beside a picnic area. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> it's very weird. This exists you, now, you're saying? We yeah. Can find well, this? This okay. is, and this, so, so <laughs> what should we say? Is this monument yeah. glorifying cannibalism? Right. And immediately, as you say, no, no, no. That's, that's, it's, it's a culturally it's, significant moment. Pop culture, people recognize and it. And it's also, all right, here was a group of, of people who suffered greatly. Mm -hmm. So this is a monument about suffering and endurance in the middle I of see. suffering. I, yeah. I love what you bring to the conversation because you, you bring nuance to what most people like to put into boxes and essentially create sides. And so one of the narratives that's behind what you were talking about is the sort of lost cause narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some historians who look at this particular time frame and say, hey, look, after the Civil War, the South loses. And there's a group of generals, actually, in, in the South who want to rehabilitate Lee. Uh, because from a military perspective, some of Lee's choices may not have been uh, what have, would have preserved the South if that was what their goal was. And so th they embark on a, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, a campaign historically to produce a certain type of historical perspective on the Civil War, which then becomes mm -hmm. known as the Lost Cause, which the argument then becomes that uh, many of these monuments then grow out of that sort of perspective on the world. And in some ways, that's what currently is being rejected. They're, they're saying these, these monuments aren't true. They're, you know, they, they represent a, a history of the past that actually isn't accurate. How do you respond to that as you think about mm -hmm. this time frame? Monuments are never that simple. I mean, the North, is full of monuments of Union soldiers. I mean, go into any small town in my own home state of Pennsylvania, and in the center of the town, in the town square, there'll be a there'll be a Union soldiers monument. Sometimes it looks like they were all bought from the same place too. <laughs> Sometimes they were bought from the, the same place. place. Was every Union soldier an angel? Was every Union soldier a disciple of Abraham Lincoln? Did was every Union soldier in favor of emancipation? No. So what are we celebrating with those Union soldier monuments? It's a little bit more complicated than that. Similarly, with many monuments to Southern soldiers, are these necessarily monuments glorifying segregation, Jim Crow, racism, racial oppression? Mm. Sometimes they are monuments to communities that saw almost an entire generation of their young people wiped out by the war. When you look at the casualty statistics in the American Civil War. The South suffered a literal decimation of its, of its white male population of military age. That's, that's a casualty impact. It's a demographic catastrophe of serious proportions. And as much as one can say and should say that the Confederacy was a cause no one should have been enthusiastic to endorse, Nevertheless, young people were drafted into that, and a large number of them never came back. And sometimes those statues are a community's 
collective wail of grief over what it has lost. And it's never exactly one thing either. There's always a, a modeling together of all of these motivations. And the monuments themselves, you might say, change over time too. You don't think a monument can change. I mean, if it's granite or it's bronze, you know, it's supposed to be always the same. And yet it's not because it changes in our perceptions. I think of the monuments on the battlefield of Gettysburg. There's over a thousand of them. And I look at many of those monuments. I've walked past them many and many and many a time. And I know that in many cases, those monuments start out as memorials, as, as tributes to the cause for which those soldiers fought. It's very consciously political. And then a generation that put the monument up passes away and is succeeded by another generation. And another generation or two now looks upon these not as memorials, but simply as monuments per se. In other words, just saying, my grandfather or my great-grandfather fought in the Union Army, and we come and we honor at this monument, we honor their memory. But we don't get more specific than that. And I think today, if I can again use the Gettysburg battlefield, a lot of people use the monuments simply as markers. This is where the 42nd New York fought on the 3rd of July, 1863. <clears throat> the monuments themselves undergo change. How do we monitor that? Well, I think that takes a good deal of care. I think it takes a good deal of inquiry and a good deal of reason. Not all monuments, not all monuments are immune. I mean, there are some people who want to say, no, we should never remove monuments because that's removing history. I think that's an, a defective argument. There's some monuments that do deserve to be removed. There's some monuments that, for the life of me, I cannot understand why they were ever erected. But the process of evaluation, I think, has to be a lot more careful because the monuments themselves are much more complex sites on the landscape. Mm. So how do we go about doing that? Back in 2017, um, a former student of mine, John Rudy, uh, wrote together with me um, an article about monuments. How do we evaluate monuments? How, how should we proceed with them? And what we created was a kind of decision tree that had five steps. It asked five questions. And the first question, just to give you an example, was this. Are there people who have suffered today, living people today, who have suffered harms at the hands of the people identified in that, those statues. And at that point, our answer to the question was to say, if the answer here is yes, if there are living people who have suffered those harms, then take the statue down. Hmm. And that speaks, for instance, to the removal in 1956 of the statue of Joseph Stalin in Budapest by the Hungarian rebels. It speaks to the removal of statues throughout Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it speaks even to the removal of the statue, the pulling down of the statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. Because there are people who had, and many people who had suffered harms at the hands of those individuals. And we did something of the same thing in 1776 when we pulled down a statue of King George III hmm. in New York City and melted it down for bullets to fire at British soldiers. Hmm. Now, here were people who had suffered direct harms that way. If the answer to that question is yes, take the statue down. But if no, all right, go to the next question. So we proceeded through mm. five levels of questioning. There was no guaranteed outcome of the answers to those questions. 
we couldn't say, oh, it'll automatically make people keep monuments or automatically make them remove. Our point was, let's make this a reasoned process. Hmm. Let's not be governed by impulse because in a way, monuments are too complicated and too important on the landscape simply to be the product of a decision governed by impulse. We've seen what has happened in the past when impulse has decided things. In the time of the English Reformation, for instance, it's estimated by the staff at the Tate Gallery that something like 90% of England's religious art was destroyed in the Reformation. And why was that? Well, there were people who were convinced that this religious art was going to lead people to hell. So if it's going to have that dire a consequence, oh, destroy it, destroy the stained glass windows, destroy the religious art. Hmm. Now we look back on this afterwards and we, we put the palm to the forehead and we say, what were they thinking? Mm -hmm. But that's because there's distance here and distance allows reason to operate. Whereas people then were functioning at the, at the most basic level of impulse and emotion. Impulse and emotion are not the best basis on which to make historical evaluations. So given the complexity of monuments, given the role that reason should play in historical understanding, even if there's no guaranteed outcome one way or the other about moving through that decision tree, at least at the end of the process we can say, we did not do this by impulse, we did this out of a reasoned process. And it seems to me that is applying history and public life in the very best way. Mm -hmm. when, when I think of, of emotion and impulse and reason, I think, Robin, I, I want to ask you just politically uh, as a leader of, of an institution, what was it like to go through those years between 2017 and really 2020 again, when this obviously flared up and it's always a live issue? How do you lead a community that has passionate feelings on either side of something like this through thinking about it and not merely to, to resort to emotion or impulse, but to think about it reasonably, like in real terms with real people here. How, how does that work? I think it was really difficult, but I do think it is for the reason that Alan just articulated, meaning that it is the passion of the moment that drives people on the various spectrums that are arguing about specific things. And so whether it was in the riots that were after the George Floyd situation, which then led to lots of conversations about how we remember history or how we memorialize our past. Those were just very difficult because reason in some senses wasn't allowed to operate because you had to exist in the moment. I mean, you know, we think about, we were being demanded um, new statements almost and, you know, daily. Right, make a uh, statement about absolutely. this. What's your reaction to this? And so yeah. we eventually just came up with a statement on statements that said, you know, generally uh, we're against evil and we, we don't want to see negative things happen to people and we want to be thoughtful about our approach to the world and we operate out of a Christian perspective. So we made a statement that suggested what our principles were and what we were committed to and then said we will stand apart from the various things that happen so that we can assess them more mm -hmm. actively. But it, it's not easy because the people in your community can be, as Alan said, deeply harmed by one of the incidents that happens or a monument that's up someplace. And so it's more than, it's very personal at that point. Mm -hmm. So then you depend on relationship, you depend on conversation. Mm -hmm. And what should make an educational institution really powerful, right, is bringing different perspectives to bear in a conversation where you can listen to each other and appreciate 
different perspectives, but often in those emotional times, it, it it's so difficult to make that happen as every institution found out. Right. Okay. As we close here, I want to ask this very light, small question yeah, to close, which is when we think about civil war, I'm looking at 2024. Some people are saying this is going to be a defining year and not in a good way. Trump, Biden, every division in the country will be exacerbated. People will be talking about civil wars and stochastic terrorism and every horrible thing. As historians, I realize that maybe, you know, as an historian, people might think of you as looking toward the past, but we also want wisdom from the past too. I wonder if each of you in turn could comment on, just as an American, how we might prepare intellectually, spiritually in our hearts and in our interactions with others that might prepare us for what promises to be a pretty divisive election and will no doubt evoke the language and imagery of civil war in our society. I always think first that, you know, we've been talking about the civil war and the civil war itself has unique conditions that Alan's already talked about that don't exist today. I mean, from, again, you, you know, the idea that you would have a civil war on the level of 1861, 1865 today just is unthinkable to me, largely because the United, one of the outcomes of the civil war is the development of a, a large federal system and with it, a large federal fighting force right. and the ability of, a, of the civilian population to revolt against that force in any meaningful way today would be very, very limited. Mm. Uh, it's a different question to ask, could you revolt politically and what might that look like? I do think, you know, one of the challenges of historians is that we have a hard time assessing what happens now because we need time to think about the period. And you do have in the Civil War periods of significant political realignment. And, and that's one of the outcomes of the Civil War. So that the party system fails in some fashion as you come up to the to the Civil War, mm. and you have the emergence of a new party, the, the free soil of the Republicans, who, who then dominate politics for essentially the next 40 to 50 years. And that is an outcome of the political system and the Civil War, but you could see some elements of that emerging in, in 2024, as you've already probably seen uh, John F. Kennedy uh, III, I believe, is, is running as an independent, mm. right? So you, you begin to have people escape the political system. So could we be in that kind of crisis period of realignment? Maybe. But there's all kinds of things in the political structure that limit the ability to operate out of that two-party system. Mm. And so is that possible? Perhaps. Is it likely? I think not. Um, and as Alan said in conversation earlier today, I, I think for whatever reason, our media likes to describe every election as a uh, watershed election today. <laughs> a crisis, and, the and, most uh, important of our time. It, it certainly fits in with social media. It furthers people's interest in the time, but it's rarely the case that that is true. And the, and the American system has pursued, uh, has been resilient in the face of, God, I mean, think of the Bush-Gore election, right? I mean, essentially, mm. uh, we waited for weeks as the election was decided. So I I think we're more resilient as a population than the media sometimes gives us credit for, mm. even though we have severe political feelings at this time. So. Well, not only more resilient, but I think also more homogeneous. And one thing you have to have, so to speak, as a requirement for civil war is really serious division. And I mean division, not just in terms of people disagreeing with each other, but people existing in, in different cultural universes. And that's really not the case in the United States. I mean, I... I flew here yesterday from Philadelphia, right, the East Coast, through Minneapolis, and here I am in Portland. 
And when I get on the ground, I'm looking around and I'm seeing the same chain stores. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking the same language. I'm looking at the same kinds of highway signs. I'm looking at a surprising amount. So you're saying like Target will save us from That's Civil right. War. Target, will, yeah. tar <laughs> Target may not save us, but Target is an example of what does save us. And that is there's a great deal more commonality of experience than, than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. I often talk about causes of the Civil War in my classes. And I point out one important thing that made the Civil War happen. And that is sectionalism. Uh, slavery is, is the ultimate factor and the algorithm that makes the war, but even slavery wouldn't have created a civil war if slavery had only been legal, let's say, in Minnesota, Maine, Florida, and Louisiana. Why? Because they're so far removed from each oh, other. Oh, sectionalism meaning like the region of the, the, yeah, region yeah. Of the country, yeah. Instead, what you had, you had an entire region that identified culturally that way. And it was homogenous in its cultural commitments that way. And there was, it was large enough and involved enough states that it looked like it could actually be a functional independent nation of its own. Mm. And so people are willing to commit themselves to something as horrifying as civil war. That doesn't persist today. I mean, there's red states and blue states, I know. But the red states and the blue states don't form homogeneous units. And even within red and blue states, there's large pockets in each. In a blue state with a red pocket and a red state with a blue pocket. This is, this is the story all over the United States. So we're, we're dealing with a great deal more unity than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. We've also been through divisive political environments before, and they have not given us civil war. The election of 1800 was one of the worst in terms of political polarization. And somehow we survived that. Uh, not only survived it, but had a peaceful transition of power. We have had elections like the election of 1824 and then following that 1828 involving Andrew Jackson. That was an enormously polarizing pair of elections. The election of 1876 almost had people talking about a renewal of civil war, hmm. but it didn't happen. And so we move up through our own times. We have had some very difficult electoral seasons, and there have been all kinds of irregularities, surprises, divisions, recombinations, and yet we have, we have survived all of them because fundamentally our institutions and our constitution are built around some very sound foundations with which, at the end of the day, just about all Americans agree. We may disagree on how we apply them, but fundamentally, we are disagreed. I haven't met anybody yet, despite the polarizations, who believes that the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence was wrong. You know, when, it, when, it's, when we say that in the course of human events, we are taking steps that are based upon our recognition of natural rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have yet to hear a single important figure in American politics get up and say, oh, no, no, that's dead wrong. What we need is an aristocracy. Okay, that would be division, all right? <laughs> but we disagree about application, we disagree about definition, but we don't disagree about those things, which are at the center of our political life. So yes, we will have contest. 
Sometimes the contest will boil into some very unpleasant moments. Civil war is not always a matter of two armies marching against each other, representing two right. rival political sovereignties. Sometimes civil war can take a brush fire form. Mm. And there is always that possibility that some groups in some areas and some locations may attempt something foolish on their own. That's, that does happen. But are we looking at something as terrible as the American Civil War was from 1861 to 65? I don't think so. Not in 2024. Mm. Contest, yes. Division, yes. Polarization and a lot of name-calling, yeah. But... <laughs> When has that ever been different yeah. in American life? Yeah. I mean, even, even Lincoln in 1860 and 1864, my goodness, the things that were printed about Lincoln in the press, the accusations that were made, we look at them saying, we say, oh my goodness, how did, how did the political system hold together? Yeah. But it did, even though there was a civil war on. The American Civil War resulted as the cluster of a number of factors. And the chance that those factors are going to get repeated in 2024, I think is is remote to a point almost beyond being worth discussing. Wow. So I have two words for everyone about 2024. Don't panic. Don't panic. I take hope from that. And this is a great note to end on. Professor Gelzo, thank you so much for being here and for talking with us about this. And President Baker, thank you so you much bet. for your wisdom as well. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode.